Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Customer Data Perspectives. I want to welcome today Allison Schiff. She's the managing editor at Ad Exchanger. Hi, Allison. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to cover a lot of different ground and on many different topics today. I want to start with something I'm hearing and seeing and reading most about. I know some of your writers at Ad Exchanger have covered this. Let's talk about whether or not you believe there's an impending recession. Uh, marketing is a common line item to get challenged, whacked and hit, depending on the verb you like to use, when people are fearful about uh, changes in the economy. Uh, do you have any thoughts for marketers around what they should do during a recession? I mean, whacked is, um, it's an evocative word, but it's probably pretty accurate. Like when money gets tight, people see marketing, like you were saying, they see it as a cost center rather than a revenue generator, which is kind of short-term thinking. Um, yeah, I mean, a market downturn will usually lead to a pullback in, in marketing spend, but that's, it's really related to fear because people are afraid. They pause things that don't seem essential to keep the business running, um, even though in the long-term marketing really does keep the, the business running. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I think, about a recession or a time of uncertainty is that marketers will start to reevaluate their partners to try and like trim fat and be as efficient as possible. So they might actually look at their technology stack and decide like it's time to shake things up a little bit, like in the name of, of efficiency. So it might, you know sound you know counterintuitive but like at a time when marketers are spending you know less they're actually potentially like more open to new partners and and partnerships because those can potentially help them you know spend better and and spend smarter and like we saw that during the pandemic like it was chaotic and it was confusing but it was also an opportunity for companies to clean house and just to make their their tech stack like work a little better and to optimize their their revenue but uh one other thing that does occur to me too is that like um a recession it's an opportunity to grab market share while everyone is getting more conservative with their spending so like the inclination is to pull back but if you spend strategically you could attract people to your to your brand with messaging that speaks to to the current climate so not that you have to discount everything that you have in your warehouse but you know it's people are in a brand switching kind of mood when money is tight you know as a person who comes mostly from a data and technology background. I love your answer because you, you got like, you know, let's go address some of the inefficiencies in your technology stack. This is a good thing to invest in now and just become more efficient, uh, reevaluate partners, get smarter about what you're doing. But, you know, for me, it's, you know, you made some decisions two, three, four years ago uh, around what experiments and what customer segments you were going after. Um, what products you are pushing and things like that. And maybe, you know, some of that needs to get reevaluated to use your word. But uh, this is also a good time to really be smart and strategic about growing market share. So really like that answer. I don't think people should be fearful of it. Uh, just be smarter about what's uh, coming down the road. And, you know, that leads into you've covered so many great topics around uh, using customer data and getting after business outcomes. I want to explore some of these topics with you. Um, one of them around fingerprinting and your recent article said, quote, the writing is on the wall. Can you share a little bit of a one on one on what fingerprinting is, what Apple is and isn't doing about it and the impact on both marketers and developers around it? 
Yeah. Okay. So fingerprinting in a nutshell, it's an online tracking technique. Um, basically, you're linking multiple different device attributes and combining that information into um, what is known as a hashed identifier. So like a numerical string. And you can still like identify someone online fairly accurately, even if you don't have any cookies. So people use fingerprinting when you know, someone has cookies turned off. So you're cobbling together this ID by looking at all of these different parameters, like the plugin somebody has installed, uh, the time zone on the person's you know, device, their IP address, although IP addresses are getting a little harder to come by, mm -hmm. uh, the user agent string, which is what identifies the browser that someone is using, uh, the fonts they have installed, the OS, like the language they use, the screen resolution. It's like all of these different things. And it's probabilistic because you're combining data points to make what is essentially an educated guess, but it still can be pretty accurate. Um, and it it's problematic, um, although people have been doing it for, for a very long time, uh, there's crackdowns because it's considered a privacy problem because third-party cookies for all of their many ills, and we'll probably talk about that a little later in the episode, you can turn them off. You can clear your cookies periodically, but you cannot opt out of fingerprinting. It's not a transparent process. Like a fingerprint is not stored locally on a device. So you can't delete that information or re really even know if you're being tracked in that way. Um, and I, what I think is interesting, actually, is that Apple is not the only company that's making moves to curb fingerprinting. There's this proposed API in the Chrome privacy sandbox that um, is collecting all of these different potential alternatives for the functionality that uh, people lose when third-party cookies go away. So it's an API called NatCatcher. Because most of these APIs have weird bird names. Nat Catcher is a kind of bird. Um, but it, it basically just hides a user's IP address so that it can't be used to target people, which kind of short circuits fingerprinting. And Amazon is masking IP addresses for its CTV apps whenever they share like ad campaign data. So, data, so for, for Twitch and also for Freebie, which used to be IMDB TV. Mm -hmm. And then going, going back to Apple, it was two years ago. Um, it's it's a time that every app developer remembers very well, you know, because it was that this is when the writing went on the wall. And it was at the same time that it was the first announced that Apple was going to start requiring an opt-in for the IDFA, which is its ad ID for iOS. And, you know, Apple at the same time said the fingerprinting would not be allowed like under its policies. And it, this was true even before like iOS 14.5 was released. But you know, Apple came out and said very definitively, you know, that if you are an app or an SDK, which is a software development kit, um, which are the partners that apps work with, if you guys rely on fingerprinting as a as a tracking technique, you will run the risk of being rejected from the app store. You know, you know what I love about this story is that, uh, um, you know, there's just I was amazed when I went looking up and researching on more about fingerprinting, just the number of attributes you can get access to um, if you, you know, break these rules and, and just, you know, start doing what uh, developers do, which is get, get access to data. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, then, you know, there's so much knowledge that you have to have to actually put it to use to be able to capture the data to know the apis out to know what you can and can't do with it and as apple and others are coming to realization that they need to put the right um, technologies and policies in place to protect it it's also creating sort of this wall right that they're going to be able to control the data a little bit better they're going to be able to control the ad networks a little bit better and we 
continually need to learn and adapt their strategy. And, you know, here's another area, we, you know, you mentioned cookie lists. Let's demystify another term around this. It doesn't really mean cookie lists. It means what third party cookies are going away. What's, what's the implications of that? Right. Well, just to take a step back, this major pet peeve of mine is like mm. mushy words. Like when people <laughs> just, they hide behind jargon. I deal with a lot of that when people are explaining their technologies to me during a background briefing or whatever, they just gloss over stuff. They, you know, say things that if you peel it back, they don't really like mean anything. Like, how does that actually work? How are you doing what you do? They're like kind of minor offenders. Like I hate when people say leverage instead of use. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really symptomatic of a problem because people are trying to make things sound more complicated than they really are. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then there are terms that get like conflated or that, you know, people get confused because there are too many like meanings that are tossed under one umbrella, like cookie list, which is become like an umbrella term to mean like all kinds of signal loss. So, you know, the loss of, uh, the IDFA on iOS, which is opt-in, it's not like Apple got rid of it, but mm -hmm. you have to ask people for permission. So people are kind of referring to that, even though that has nothing to do with cookies, um, and they also, you know, sometimes seem to refer to the and to use of first party cookies, but cookie list really is just very specifically the end of third party cookies on on Chrome. And using cookie list as a, an umbrella term just like obscures, I think, people's understanding of how identity is changing online by just being too general. And um, yeah, it's annoying. <laughs> it, it's, you know, uh what I like about your answer is, you know, ask the question to really understand the jargon people are using in front of you. Um, sometimes it's dropped um, from a, 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 you know, creating a fear factor or an unknown factor intentionally. Uh, in other words, use my product because it will help you deal with X, whatever it's X magic. is, right? It's magic. It's going to solve this problem. But the reality is we're talking about identity and identity is not an easy problem to solve. It's always historically been a hard problem to solve. I have multiple mailing addresses. I have dozens of email addresses. Um, I go cookie list in some places and I disabled, I disabled it before uh, Chrome was preventing it. Now it's much easier to control what data is being shared, but it's not perfect. And if you're a marketer, you're going to invest time and energy and dollars to do your best you can because it's kind of an incremental spend to get better and more accuracy uh, but uh, around identity. But you also have to understand the regulations around it. That's what I'm hearing uh, from this conversation. No, definitely. And and one point I, I did want to make is that people are always talking about this, quote unquote, cookie-less future. But one, third-party cookies are still supported on Chrome. The phase-out won't start until next year. And that was already delayed. And it's possible that you know Google will delay it yet again. And so that, that speaks to like this cookie-less future. But we really live in a, a present where third-party mm -hmm. cookies aren't available on the two other major browsers that have less market share than Chrome, but you know, third-party cookies are not supported on Safari or Firefox. So if you kind of like bury your head in the sand and you know just pretend like there's some future that's coming, you're ignoring the fact that today a lot of your users are already, you know, not third-party cookieable. Um, and yeah, you just but you have to really grapple, you know, with the 
the fact that, you know, there is a trend right now toward, you know, the, a crackdown on, you know, cross-site tracking. So that that really should like inform, you know, everybody's, um, you know, to-do list. Like if you were going to, sorry to use kind of an annoying jargony phrase, but if you're going to future-proof yourself, like you really have to understand the reality of what's happening and like get into the nuances. Um, otherwise, you're just, you're going to be kind of buffeted about by people's sales pitches and that's just going to waste your time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And um you know, again, we're we're talking about a hard problem to solve. You're only going to get there incrementally. And um, I, you know, look, I tell people, I tell technologists, data people, marketers, you need to get in the weeds and really understand how some things work and realize, you know, your dollar added to go after, you know, another variable, another dimension, another way of measuring people on different platforms. It's, it's hard. Right. And so stay focused on the outcomes that you're trying to get to. And, you know, that gets into, you know, another technology area that you've been covering this, you know, Apple's attribution API, <clears throat> largely ignored uh, by the tech and data providers. Uh, now everybody has to learn it. And you described it as wonky. That's another great word. I love that. It is. Uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, what's the future of attribution on iOS look like for marketers? What does it all mean? Well, I, if you don't mind, can I go back in, in the past Please. just for a second? Sure. Because yeah. it, it feels like emblematic to me of how a lot of people go about their, their business, like not necessarily planning for the future, even when they have a hint that the future is going to change. Because like, like you said, SK Ad Network, which is the name for, or some people call it SCAD or SCAN or whatever, <laughs> but it was largely ignored by mobile measurement providers. And more than ignoring it, they kind of scoffed at it. Like when the specs for the very, very first version were very quietly released, like back mm -hmm. in, in 2018, nobody really paid attention to it other than this um, mobile consultant and writer named Eric Suford. And I read his post. So then I I was intrigued and I, I wrote about it too. And I remember talking to mobile attribu attribution providers at the time, and they just weren't that bothered by it, or at least they told me they weren't. Like they didn't think that Apple would want to like get its hands dirty and get involved in in attribution and like they were wrong uh, and year, years went by though to be fair until Apple released anything but um, like in 2020 it became pretty much the only way to get attribution data on iOS devices for users who opt out of letting companies use their their IDFA which is a large amount like you know that I've read different numbers and seen different stats but I think it's more than 50%, like well mm -hmm. over 50% of people will not opt in to be, um, to have their IDFA used for tracking and, and for measurement. And the problem is that, you know, SK Ad Network didn't really work that well. It works a little better now, but I mean, there were bugs and developers barely got back any data, like optimization was really hard and like still remains hard. Um, it's a pretty basic tool, even, you know, with the new additions like Apple has been, which is uncharacteristic for Apple, listening to um, suggestions from the developer community and making tweaks so that SKAD Network 4.0, which is what we're up to, is a little like less wonky and a little more useful. But um, I, I would quote somebody that I, I spoke with for this explainer story we wrote about SKAD Network 4.0, where he called it um, a no longer actively painful to use, which <laughs> is kind of damning wow. something with faint praise, but, um, but yeah, at least the newer version is functional. Um, and 
you know, you, you have to use it and you have to be, um, you know, like, uh, you be, basically you have to justify your existence. I think like as a mobile measurement provider, they have to position themselves as facilitators, like to help developers use SKI network properly because it can get, get a little complicated. And so, um, yeah. I'll tell you the story that reminds me of, I'm going to date myself too, is when, you know, we were doing web sites 10, 15 years ago, sort of had the choice of, you know, are you going to go use a site measurement tool, a Google Analytics and Omniture back at the, those days, or are you going to use log files and, and or put your own JavaScript on the site and try to do it yourself? And we quickly realized that the, the complexity of trying to measure things yourself is really hard to do it accurately, to get all the data that you want. And so, you know, of course, nowadays, most of us are dropping JavaScript on our pages from one or other providers. And what you're seeing is the providers have to keep up with data, with regulation, with capability. And uh, when you get into newer areas like mobile, um, and harder areas like attribution, we're not going to go do it ourselves. A marketer is not going to ask their development team to go figure this out. You're going to rely on a provider, but you still need to be smart about what's happening across the ecosystem and to pressure your, your technology providers if that's a direction that you need, that you need attribution data. This Apple who has an API out there. Maybe it's a little bit wonky, but maybe we should tell us where it is on, our, on your roadmap. Does that make sense? No, de definitely. And um, I, I do I do think that a lot of mobile measurement providers were right when I spoke to them back in the day when they said, yeah, yeah like we're not going to be completely disintermediated. I mean, even though they kind of had their head in the sand about it and they're like, oh, SK Ad Network, what is this? Whatever. Apple won't get involved in attribution. They were wrong about that. But they were right that their partners will continue, again, developers will continue looking to them for help and for guidance and to like demystify and explain things you know, to them because attribution is a vitally important and it really has a, a massive impact on how they optimize and how they spend and where they direct their money. But it's not the only thing that they do. They have a lot of considerations. So they do need like experts to direct them and to make sure that they're really up to date on technical things so that they can go to the experts, the people who have made themselves expert um, over the past couple of years, because it was a mad scramble for, for advice. Super. So let's shift gears. We talked about identity a little bit, now attribution. Now let's switch to content and platforms. And, you know, if we talked about content and platforms a decade ago, maybe it was 15 years ago, we'd have been talking about the shift from web to mobile, right? The device changes, um, the user experience changes, how you have to create content a little bit differently. So I want to explore this evolution in two steps. First, this notion of, you know, we're moving from set-top boxes to OTT and CTV and what that means. We have a whole new area of platforms to advertise in, to create content for, to actually leverage and reach audiences with. And then let's shift to our future where we're going um, uh, to uh, Web3 and around the metaverse. But let's start with OTT and CTV. What should marketers really understand about these platforms today? I mean, they're a massive opportunity, but since it seems to be like a little bit of a minor theme for this podcast to talk about defining terms, there is actually a difference between OTT yes. and, and CTV, which I think like bears, you know, like talking about just for for a second, the um, the Media Rating Council, they audit and evaluate like measurement companies and they create standards for measurement for different media environments. 
uh, I believe it was earlier this year, they decided on some actual definitions for CTV and OTT, which often get conflated and they're not synonyms for each other. So the way I understand it, CTV <laughs> is any video that isn't linear television that gets delivered onto like a, a TV screen. So like a streaming device or a smart TV, but also including like gaming consoles. And then OTT is when, you know, you watch The Handmaid's Tale, like on your laptop or your phone or, or whatever. So just take that for what it's worth. But I think it's, it is worth knowing, knowing the difference. But I mean, in terms of what marketers should know about streaming, it's obviously this massive investment opportunity for them. But what I think is interesting is that it's actually not an, this unlimited opportunity that everyone seems to frame it as. Um, by which I mean, there's not unlimited like premium CTV inventory. I mean, a lot of people watch a lot of, you know, random stuff, but people kind of fail to talk about the long tail when they're talking about the potential of, of streaming. Um, there is a ton of long tail inventory. So you might end up with some premium placements on Hulu, or you might end up on a channel with, I don't know, stuff that videos for like a, to calm your puppy or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and it's, so it's just not inherently premium. Um, and measurement is also, you know, challenging. Like if you want to be able to really analyze and track like the success of, of performance campaigns, I mean, it's, it's fragmented and like, it's really hard to know if your CTV ad had an impact or even exactly where it ran. Cause a lot of platforms won't tell you, they'll just tell you that it it ran but not with show and uh and yeah i mean there are there are a lot of people you can reach with ad supported you know video on demand but there are a lot of people you can't reach because they you know, subscribe not to see ads um but then again look like netflix is going to launch an ad supported tier sooner rather than later. So that's a lot of premium inventory that'll that'll come onto the scene. Um, but I would just advise people, I, what do I know? I just kind of, I write about whatever uh, seems interesting to me here and there. But like my advice would be not to get like the shiny object syndrome with CTV. Like just take, you know, claims with a grain of salt, um, you know, really think about the measurement side of things and like, don't think of it as some kind of savior. Thinking of it, think of it as like an opportunity, but, you know, not, it's not like galloping in on a white horse or anything. Um, I will say though, that AVOD ad supported video on demand, like is going to be an opportunity, like as the recession hits, because people will want to save money. So, and they still will want to watch stuff um, yeah. and maybe won't have money to go out to dinner. So they'll order in and they'll watch, uh, they'll watch Pluto TV. There you go. You know, um, we always talk about this, you know, when the new mediums come out, we tend to repurpose content and repurpose older business models for that medium. And, you know, uh, streaming is just, you know, at the end of the day, it's a pipe, but we really didn't rediscover what that medium was until very recently. And now you're starting to see new ad models against it. You're seeing new business models against it, and you're seeing new types of content being created for it. So, you know, I'll watch a ball game on my mobile device and there's content on the right side of the screens and there's ad placements on the bottom sides of the screen while I'm watching the game. And it's interesting. It keeps me more engaged. And actually I click on more ads because of it, because it's smarter about who I am and what I'm doing um, at the time. So I think, you know, this is a place where creativity is going to shine a light over the next few years. I don't think there's going to be a, 
a winning set of answers for a little bit because it's a pretty wide playing field. And, you know, that's going to lead to the next gen of technologies. Web3 and Metaverse are going to be creating new devices again. They're going to have new technologies against it. They're going to have new business models and new content created for it. I think you and I have somewhat similar opinions on where the technology is today, but I'll I'll let you share, you know, what should marketers think about, you know, somebody says, let's go do a big campaign or a big idea against the metaverse. What, what's, what, what are you thinking there? I mean, first I want to solve for frequency capping on CTV. (laughs) Can we do that first before we go into the metaverse? Yeah. That That would be nice. Um, I mean, in a weird way, like I, I don't really feel equipped to answer that question because I don't feel like anyone is equipped to answer that question. Like there's a lot of BS peddling that's going on, all this hype. And, you know, if someone, if an industry is like still trying to define like what the environment is, and there's probably even going to be like multiple metaverses and this whole concept of like interoperability or whatever, it just seems not premature to like think about how you might want to be present in the metaverse, but definitely like premature to really like want to monetize it in a way that like other media environments are are monetized. Um, I went to this conference in Toronto last week, so um, you know mid mid June, and there was a, a panel discussion on this topic. Um, it was called advertising in the metaverse, and it did not answer that question, like how to advertise in the metaverse. And that's because, you know, no one could clearly define like what the metaverse is, let alone like what to to advertise in it. But one of the speakers did say something, which I agree with. She's like, I really hope it doesn't end up just being like virtual billboards and slapping the display ads everywhere. And I don't think it will be, but I also don't think it's going to be like the Wendy verse, which is like Wendy's version of its restaurant with games and stuff in Horizon Worlds, or, you know, there's this this like Chipotle experience where you can wrap burritos and deliver them in Roblox. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm clearly like too old for this because <laughs> I'm, I, I do know like people, like young people, the youngs will play Roblox for hours and it looks like primitive and basic, but it's, you know, absolutely. It's like so interesting to them. They love it. And so I just, I feel like, uh, a little bit of a of a luddite sometimes but those kinds of experiences right like wendy's in horizon worlds and um chipotle and roblox that feels like experimentation it's not a metaverse strategy you know and i think it's a little difficult to have a real metaverse strategy but um but yeah i mean it's fine to mess around but you don't have to feel like fomo like everyone's in the metaverse and like what what's my strategy like i don't think you're missing out if you don't have a roblox experience so like think about it and you know, address it in your meetings, but you don't have to like rush in and create some kind of experience for your brand. It doesn't necessarily make sense. And not everyone needs NFTs either. Uh, there you go. Well, uh, but, uh, you know, your, your response makes me think of my kids because they're on Roblox. They're, they're playing all these sort of simulation games, but then when you put the brand on it, right. And you think about brand recognitions and, you know, early teen, preteen, you know, if they're on those devices and they're on those applications, they're going to know Wendy's before somebody else just because of their presence. If they really like, you know, the experience that that brand is offering. And then I think about, you know, I'm going to age myself again. That's sort of very quick. The web was a directory with really primitive graphics, really slow. 
and, uh, and, you know, maybe the 1997 experience. And then by 1999, you know, there was the equivalent of unicorns doing primitive e-commerce until the bubble burst in 2001. So in that five-year period of time, we went from primitive experience to I need to be there to we've probably over-invested in it. And, um, I, you know, the metaverse may be longer because we maybe hopefully a little bit smarter around it. Uh, the technology and the content is a little bit more complicated after all, we're not just putting each HTML up in a browser on a screen. Um, so it's going to take a little bit longer for all of us to figure out how to put this together. And then we're going to make the same mistakes, right? We're going to start doing repurposing our content for this new medium, and it's just not going to fit the bill. We're going to have to evolve and learn about it. Let's cover one, a couple more dimensions. Um, I really want to cover this dimension. We're doing all this talk around identity, attribution, platforms. Talk to me what the latest and greatest is around um, regulations and privacy laws that I have to keep in the back of my mind as I'm starting to work in these different areas. I mean, there, there are two new ones. Uh, Connecticut and, and Utah both passed um, their own privacy laws, which brings state privacy laws up to five because there's California, of course. That was the first. Everyone talked a ton about CCPA and then CPRA. There's also uh, Virginia and Colorado. And um, I mean, what, what I would say is that they're not massively different from each other, even though there is like nuance that you have to be aware of if you, if you want to comply. Um, so I, I am not a lawyer, uh, so that's my disclaimer, but we, we published a, a useful column in Ad Exchanger in early June. Um, it was written by two lawyers at the, the law firm Davis and Gilbert, and they, they talk about the difference between the, the two new laws and also bring in, you know, kind of examples from the three that are already, um, on the books because Connecticut and Utah are not like in effect yet, even though they've passed. and they, uh, they had some words of comfort for companies that are trying to comply, which is, you know, that a lot of these state laws, they follow similar patterns. So if you've started to get into compliance with laws in California and Virginia and Colorado, and you have also thought deeply and have a strategy for complying with GDPR, then you're not going to be like super surprised what's in Utah's law or Connecticut's law. Like you'll be in a pretty good position to comply. Um, but you do have to pay attention to the details. So, I mean, just like one example is the the difference between what constitutes a quote unquote sale, like under different statutes. Mm. Um, you know, usually um, it's a sale of personal information that will trigger, you know, the, the application of any of these laws, but they don't all define sale exactly the same way. So under Utah's law, a sale is when you exchange personal data for like, money, um, some kind of like monetary consideration by a data controller to a third party. So that actually might not apply to the exchange of third party cookie data across platforms. But under the Connecticut law, which is pretty similar to Colorado and also mm. to the laws in California, the sale um, includes oh, the definition of a sale also includes like for money or other quote unquote valuable consideration. And that could include the sharing of third-party cookies. So there are so many, you know, like overlapping elements, but there are also, whatever, the devil's in the details, basically. That would be my takeaway. The devil's in the details, but I think the big takeaway is that it's, you know, in the span of jurisdictions that are creating these laws is increasing. So, you know, if you operated only in the U.S., 
and were a medium-sized business just geographically in the U.S., maybe you didn't pay attention to GDPR very much. Um, if you were a regional business only operating in the Northeast, maybe you didn't pay attention to CCPA as much as you should have. And now it's in Connecticut, uh, it's in Utah, it's in other places. And yeah, the rules are the same, but now you're two or three years behind your competitors that might have been, you know, putting the regulations, putting the data governance in place, building up an internal understanding of what you can and can't do. And chances are, if it's not in your area, it's probably coming soon. Um, and you're probably going to need somebody who's going to interface with experts to say, here's what you should and shouldn't do around your product or your offering uh, when it comes into your area. The zeitgeist, yeah. Yeah. So let's bring this all together, right? We're talking again, identity, attribution, privacy, medium, all this involves uh, customer data, right? And how we're using it, um, what, uh, what these platforms, customer data platforms are good for. Uh, you have an article from last year, privacy is the number one reason why marketers say they want to partner with a customer data platform. And that's actually surprised me because it's usually marketers not following a regulation to go after technology. It's usually, I want more data to be able to do more things with. Um, so what are some of the things, why should marketers get more comfortable with the CDP category? What's interesting about the data that you cited about privacy being the number one reason why people want a CDP, it, it, it's worth understanding what advertiser perceptions is. They're the ones that did the study. They're an interesting company because they pull advertisers, as the name denotes, like on their perceptions of the market. So what marketers think is happening is not always what's happening or it's like just what happens to be on their mind right then. Because like this is actually a funny example because a few years ago, advertiser perceptions, they did a, another CDP wave and they found that a lot of marketers said they were using the Salesforce CDP, even Salesforce. Salesforce had not released its CDP yet. <laughs> so like that was just evidence, you know, that Salesforce has a ton of mind share because you can't use a CDP that doesn't exist yet. Um, but but yeah, I mean, the, the finding that privacy is the top reason why, or at least was last year, why marketers want to partner with a CDP is like reflective of, of that challenge of keeping up with privacy regulations. And it was just like on their mind at the time. Um, they're trying to be good stewards of data. And, um, you know, they also want to do all of the cool things that you can do with a CDP. But I guess they're realizing that you need to really understand, you know, what you have in your data stores and get a really good sense of, of identity before you can do those things. And, you know, if you can do those things, all of those things with a CDP, maybe it makes sense to have just one partner um, as opposed to, you know, like a confusing stack. Um, I mean, it, it really doesn't mean that privacy is the only reason they want to partner with a CDP. It's just like this foundational reason. And like once you get your data house in order, you can do all that other stuff like segmentation and activation um, and, you know, do it through through one kind of pipe. Yeah, I think what's interesting when you bring up um, where the question came from, you know, if you asked a lot of markers, I, I keep teasing this out and you ask them a question like, where do you store your customer data? They're going to say their CRM. And because that's going to be the primary source of where they go look up a customer, where they go look up an account. Um, they're not thinking about all the tentacles that their data and technology people know that, you know, there's 100, 200 SaaS platforms all collecting data or all doing activations on it. And as you get smarter and saying, look, I want to do more of this stuff, 
then you become acclimated and saying, okay, I need platforms to help me do this. And I know privacy is really important. So if I'm going to bring my customer data together, I want to be able to manage it in a compliant way. So um, this has been really great, Allison. I want to ask you one last question. I've asked everybody who's participated in customer data perspective, what's your easier button? right? Everything is hard. Um, you know, we dream bigger than we can execute. We plan more things than we can execute. You know, what's your wish list for an easier button in gaining a competitive advantage with customer data? I want a BS detector for supposedly cookie-less solutions, like truth theorem that like makes the people who sell those solutions, explain them properly and not obscure what they really do. And I mean, that way, I, I mean, that would help me do my job because I get pitched constantly with all of these companies saying they have really amazing tools and whatever, and I'm not a practitioner. I just write about this stuff and like try my best to understand it. So it would, it would really, it would help my coverage if um, I could really understand who was legit and had useful offerings. And then it would help marketers because they could run tests with companies that also have like legit solutions and not get sidetracked by like nonsensical promises and, and pitches. So, so that's the theme of our discussion today. Keep it jargon free. Tell Please. us what you do. And if you don't understand it as a buyer, ask detailed questions until you do understand it. Allison, this has been a great conversation. We've packed together a lot of different topics together that I think marketers are all facing. And, you know, I look forward to listening to this customer data perspectives episode. Have a great day. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy this episode of Customer Data Perspectives, and we'll see you at the next episode.